Afternoon. Uh, my name is Dr. Cindy Siwa-Fansale at DocCindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I on Twitter. And I have two guests in the studio for this afternoon's health hour. If you want to um, tweet us, you can tweet us at cliffcentral.com. If you want to um, catch us on Instagram, you can catch us on Cliff Central. Facebook is Cliff Central, and then WeChat is Cliff Central. So this afternoon we'll be speaking about HIV. So HIV is something that's really close to my heart, and I think most of you know that. I've got two guests in the studio with me. I have Dr. Kanye Sile Chabalala, and on Twitter she's at Dr. Kanye, D-R-K-H-A-N-Y-I. And I also have um, Dr. Lesejo Twala, and she's um, at Lesejo Twala, L-E-S-E-G-O-T-W-A-L-A. So these two ladies are really special in that they work um, in the Soweto HIV program, and they're here to give us an update of what's been happening in, in the HIV arena, and just to give us, um, yeah, just to update us on what's happening with HIV, to be, yeah, that, that's what they're here for. So I'll start off with Kanye, and um, Kanye, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Cindy, and afternoon to all your listeners. Thank you for having me. Great. So can you tell me, what's happening with um, treatment? I know that the new guidelines, well, new as an updated guidelines came out were implemented on the 1st of January 2015. So what are the, like, a few nuggets of what's, what, what has changed? What's, what's the CD4 count threshold? What's happening with HIV in that regards? Okay, so there's been a lot that's changed over the years, but specifically with these new guidelines that started 1st of January, we're now starting people much earlier on HIV treatment. So the threshold, for example, the CD4 count, we've now moved it to 500. In the past, it used to be 200. When the program was really young, we moved to 350 and we're now at 500. And most importantly, all pregnant women and breastfeeding women will now be started on ARVs regardless of what their immune system is like, lifelong, primarily also to protect the child that they're carrying. So the CD4 count is basically, that's a measure of your immune system. This is what tells us how strong your immune system is doing and um, whether you need treatment or not. That's exactly right. So it's it's a cell, it's an immune cell, and it's what we use to measure how well you're doing. So a normal CD4 count is somewhere between 500 and 2,000. So in the past, we used to wait till people were quite sick, starting at CD4 count 200. Now we've moved it up. We want to start people when they're well and maintain their good health instead of waiting them to become ill. And the thing is, um, the concern obviously has been when people get tired of medication, like treatment fatigue, starting people at 500, isn't that too much? I mean, that that's a real valid concern, um, which means that we have to redirect our efforts, not only starting people, but keeping them on treatment. But the idea is that the cost of HIV, and especially when it progresses, is a lot. Not only to the individual, being out of work, not being able to contribute to the household, the infections that they get. So the idea is to start them when they're healthy and keep them healthy. And I think if you empower people, give them knowledge and they understand that, and you continue to give that message, not just get them on treatment and then your job is done, then I think we can continue to maintain the program. And that's a very important component mm. of, of HIV work. Lisejo, um, sharing knowledge teaching about HIV, how has your experience been? Because I know you've been involved with a lot of training in the last few months. Um, well, my experience actually started while I was working at Helen Joseph Hospital. Mm. And um, I was working as part of the Infectious Diseases Unit. And that's where I became passionate about HIV because the timing actually worked with my personal life. I lost a very close aunt to HIV and she did not disclose to the family because of a fear of being judged. And I thought to myself, well, as a family, what does that say about us? That she couldn't even tell us And I saw how the disease ravaged her body and her life You know what I'm saying So that's when I really got passionate about HIV And I worked with an incredible consultant named Dr. David Spencer Who at 60 plus years is just as passionate as ever about the virus and about people He hasn't lost his love for the people So the training I was involved in was that And then when I joined the institution working with uh, Dr. Kangi and the likes There's also been a lot of training of the new guidelines of treatment Of how to manage patients at a primary care level Because before it was only at a hospital level And the primary healthcare setting is a totally different Mm -hmm. ballgame You deal with a lot more social problems And you have a lot of time one-on-one with the patient So you understand their issues a lot more So Indirectly, that has been a form of training for me and just working in a completely different arena and approaching patients from a different way. And what have been, okay, and so from Helen Joseph and then you working in the Soweto program, yes. what is, what is the biggest surprise for you? Like in terms of what you saw at Helen Joseph and what you're seeing in the Soweto clinics? Like just one thing that really surprised you? The surprise is actually, um, how positive the patients are. I'm really surprised by that because I know this might 
not be the right thing to say, but you expect to see people who are so ill and haggard and tired because in the hospital setting, most of the time, because our patients present quite late, you see people when they're extremely ill. And I was expecting to see the same kind of people in the primary healthcare setting. So I was surprised to see patients who are so empowered and who want to be there and want to take treatment and have taken their health into their own hands. So that was the best surprise for me. That's fantastic. Can you some of the myths around HIV that you've you've come across? Like what is what is the weirdest thing you've ever heard about HIV? Oh, where do I start? So one of the things of black disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. people who think it's only for the black people and the black people in Soweto. Mm-hmm. Um, a disease of the poor. I think one of the most surprising things that happened to me this year was a close friend of mine, someone I studied with at UCT, whose husband was admitted to hospital and tested positive, and that was a complete shock. And this is someone who's a graduate, who's working, living in a nice suburb in Cape Town. And, you know, people tend to think it's something that's for others far away, Mm. you know, and that's absolutely not true, you know. And the other thing is that I wanted to talk about the face of HIV, how it's changed. So people think you can look at someone, and if she's a yellow bone and she's pretty and cute, she can't be positive. And that's you can't look at people and assume, you know, their status. So I think that's the one important thing. If I can get that out there, is that you cannot look at someone, and if you think they look pretty or they look cool, they dress nice, that they, they're not ill or affected by the disease. Definitely that's something that's hurt South Africa a lot. And I think proxy testing actually follows on to that. So mm. proxy testing is when, um, you know, as Kanye has mentioned, you look at your girlfriend, you look at your partner or your, you know, whoever you're sleeping with and you figure, oh, she's fat and she's cute and she's chubby. She can't be HIV infected. Mm. And just based on that, you assume that you are HIV negative. Mm. And I mean, I always say you need to do your own test. You need to do your own test. It's so true, and I think that's the one thing that people struggle to understand, that you can have what we call discordant couples, where one is positive and one is negative. So people assume that if my partner is negative, then I must be negative as well, which is not always the case. We do have lots of couples in the program where the one has remained negative and the other is positive, and it's important to know your own personal status. And some of the causes of serodiscordancy, like what what are some of the reasons why you'd have a negative um, partner and one's positive? What are some of the reasons behind that? There are some genetic reasons. There are some people who don't have the receptor, but that's very rare. I must say a lot of people seem to think they might be the case, but that's not the case. That's a very rare case. Less than 1% of people who might not have a receptor that allows them not to get infected with HIV. Majority of the case, it's a number of factors. Maybe the partner who's positive has a very low viral load, meaning the amount of virus they have is low in the body and so their risk of transmitting is less. Maybe the male is circumcised. If you're circumcised, your risk of transmitting or acquiring is also quite less. Maybe the number of times they have sex is also quite low compared to other people. So there's so many factors that come into play, and you cannot, cannot guarantee that if people are serodiscordant, it will stay that way. I think the important thing, instead of trying to figure out why, is to make sure you maintain the status as such. Exactly. Instead of relaxing and believing that you're, you know, you're going to be okay for all. Yeah, so my mantra is manage your bodily fluids. I mean, I always say you can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. Mm. Just make sure you're keeping your germs to yourself. I keep my germs to myself, and you keep your germs exactly to yourself. Exactly right. Let's <laughs> mm. in terms of the treatment, the treatments that we have um, in our regimens now. So we've moved from a stage where we had um, stabudine, that's the drug that caused all the, the, the bodily um, disfigurements, yes. and then we moved on to having um, AZT and then TDF, and now we have the fixed dose combination, yes. which is the one tablet once a day, and that's really fantastic. Not everyone qualifies for that drug. So it's important for people to know who qualifies for it and who doesn't. So can you just unpack that for us? Sure, sure. I think that's important because we get streams of patients coming to clinics and hospitals asking for the one drug because it's so convenient. And as you said, not everybody qualifies for the drug. As you know, it's FDC, which stands for Fixed Dose Combination. It contains three drugs being tenofovir, emtricitabine, and efavirenz. And like all other drugs, drugs have got uh, side effects and they've got contraindications. Mm. So for example, let's talk about the first drug being tenofovir. Tenofovir is a relatively safe drug to give, but patients with renal problems or kidney problems cannot be given tenofovir. Mm. So if you've had a renal problem in the past or if you're struggling with renal problems, unfortunately you do not qualify for the one drug. Um, Efavirenz as well is the third drug that we talked about. Is contraindicated with patients who've got psychiatric problems. It's not safe to give those patients. So if you have an uncontrolled psychiatric problem, it's not safe to give you efavirenz. So those patients also do not qualify for the one drug. So it's important that people know that. The third drug being emtricitabine is a relatively safe drug to give. You'll see it's in most regimens. 
Yes, and it's a fantastic track. Introspectively, it's a really good track. And I'm happy you covered that. I'm happy you've covered that because it is so important to manage expectations. You know, patients can't think that if they're on a certain regimen of two drugs that they take twice a day, they can just walk into a clinic and get the one drug a day. And it's important yeah. for health workers to know that as well, that you need to make sure there are no contraindications um, to, to giving the fixed dose combination. I mean, just on moving on to condoms and prevention. Okay, so the HSRC report came out as usual shocks all around I mean we're still recovering from that report but the biggest shock was the decline in the use of condoms and I mean I'm at the moment trying to get people to use the female condom so I've tried it it is a bit squishy and noisy but nothing you can't work around what are your opinions what are your comments on the female condom have you tried it what is it like can you let's say after that I must say I haven't tried it personally mm-hmm. um, it does seem intimidating but I think because of also, the size because of the size okay. but again it's probably one of the most empowering thing we could have because then it puts the powerful condom negotiation in your own hands um, and I think it's probably one of the things that we should be talking about a lot more of the problem I think has been accessibility a lot of the time people haven't tried it because they don't come into contact with it as often as you meet or see male condoms in public toilets in hotels or wherever so I think the more accessible it becomes probably the more accessible and more willing people will be to try it. And the bulkiness of it I mean mm. I always say to people if you could, if you've you know, if you, if you, if you had a baby and a baby could pass out of your vaginal canal or you've had sex I mean it's not bigger than a penis No definitely so not. So what, what, what's, the, what's the discomfort around, around the female mm. condom? I think the discomfort that people might be afraid of is that you have to insert it yourself and insert it before time, especially for females. Use of condoms has predominantly been in the male hands. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of been his problem. He'll buy them. He'll put it on. So now you have to do it. And I think maybe that might be a little bit intimidating for some women. But I think the more we talk about it, like I'm saying, and to explain that it's easily insertable, Remember, the vagina is a flexible muscle, so it mm. easily comes in, easily comes out. It's not going to be something that's uncomfortable or it hurts during sex. So I think the more we talk about it, the more it's accessible, the more people are likely to use it. And have you tried it, Lissiho? No, I have not tried it myself. And I'll tell you why. It's what we're talking about. The size is intimidating. Mm. And I think maybe the size is intimidating because the only other condom we've ever known is the male condom, which Mm. is so many times smaller and so much easier to use. So I think maybe that's where we as healthcare workers can do better for our patients. Like Kanye said, make it more accessible. Don't make it a taboo subject. Discuss it with your patients and teach people how to use it. I am amazed by how many people don't know how to accurately use a male condom, never mind a female condom. So I think that it needs to be more part of our discussions with our patients and make it an option for them. Don't put it in a box somewhere at the back of the clinic with a pink label on it. Give it to the patients, tell them it's an option and show people how to use it. I think that's the most important thing. And speaking of the male condom, I think the one thing I get asked a lot is um, oh, I'm allergic to choice condoms and choice condoms don't work and choice condoms um, um, smell. Let's just dissect that guys and let's just have it out once and for all. Are choice condoms bad condoms? Not at all. Not at all. And I think people, if you work in the public sector, you'll hear a lot of people say they've got choice condom fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's such a dangerous sentiment to say because what's the alternative if you don't have anything else that we're offering at the moment? And the alternative is that you're taking risks just because it's a choice condom that you might not like the brand. But the risks are sexually transmitted infections other than HIV, HIV transmission. So it's, it's such a dangerous sentiment just to say people have got choice condom fatigue. And I think we really need to start talking about condoms again. Perhaps a debate, you know, weaned off over time. I think when HIV first became a huge disease in South Africa, when people were dying and it was visible when people had HIV, it's something that people were talking about every day. But now that we've got treatment, people look well, People aren't as scared as they used to be anymore, and I think that's a problem. Yeah, no, that's true. We've lost, we've lost the urgency that we had around it. Um, there's something else I wanted to bring up, and this is um, so I'm gonna I'm basically telling you what I feel a lot of because as 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 you may know, I do a lot of <coughs> online work. So I'm an online doctor, as it were. I'm a Twitter doctor, Facebook doctor, and I do a lot of work and I answer a lot of questions around HIV. And I always get questions around post-exposure prophylaxis, PEP. So if there's been sexual assaults, you've been raped or you've had um, um, occupational exposure to the virus or you've had a burst condom incident, where do people access PEP? How, what is PEP for, for uh, you know, to start with and where do you get it? Okay, um, just to unpack what PEP is. As you said, PEP stands for post-exposure prophylaxis. So that's quite self-explanatory. After you've been exposed to 
the virus or anything else, then you give prophylaxis so that you don't actually get infected with the virus. So post-exposure prophylaxis should be ideally accessed at clinics and hospitals. But the most important thing I can say about PEP is please go early. It must be given ideally within the first two hours, but you have up to 72 hours in which to get post-exposure prophylaxis. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Please go and get your post-exposure prophylaxis And what it consists of is It's ARVs essentially And there are different regimens that we can give For for patients according to tolerability And side effects But what it is is a dose of ARVs that you take for 28 days To prevent the virus From uh, getting the HIV virus Okay, and also you will get tested before you're given PEP. So there's yes. no point in giving PEP to, to someone who's positive. positive. Yes. So if you are negative, then you will get given um, 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 post-exposure prophylaxis. And if you have been sexually assaulted, you, you must go to your nearest clinic or your nearest um, police station, and they will be able to access to put you into the into the system that it will make sure that you are you are sorted out. So if you yeah, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Cindy Fansale. I have Kanyisile Chabalala and Lisekhotwale in studio, and we're chatting about HIV. They're two medical doctors, and they're based in the Soweto program, and they're doing a fantastic job with regards to HIV and teaching around HIV and so on. Um, can you just another thing that I wanted to ask you? Schools. I know you were involved with training mm. with for the for the human papilloma virus mm. vaccine, and that involves school kids. So, in terms of HIV, HPV, sex prevention, where are we when it comes to school kids? Okay, so HPV, for those who might not know, is a virus um, that infects women and men, sexually transmitted. But in women, particularly, if it infects them in the cervix, which is the mouth of the womb, it can go on to cause cancer, cervical cancer, which is a huge problem. So at the moment, there's a vaccine that's available against this HPV virus, which will then, in the long run, protect women from cancer. So in the schools at the moment, there's been a campaign going on to vaccinate young girls before they're even sexually active, so that by the time they're sexually active and potentially exposed to the virus, they're protected against it and thus protected against cancer. But I think the important thing... With HPV, it's gotten the discussion around sex going, especially with the young girls. Because if you have to vaccinate them against HPV, you have to tell them what it is. You have to tell their parents what it is. And it's uncomfortable for them. It's uncomfortable for parents. Because if you tell them it's a virus, how do they get it? It's sexually. So this discussion has sort of gotten going. It's very controversial at the moment. But I think it's an important discussion, and it's great what we've been able to do in the public sector. And condoms in schools, what are your thoughts around that? Definitely we should have them. Kids are having sex. There's no two ways around it. So the only way to do it is to have it safe sex at least, you know. You're, you're not going to stop people from having sex. You're not going to stop teenagers from experimenting. The important thing to do is make sure that they're informed, they know how to protect themselves, they know how to have fun safely. And that's all you can do. And that's true. I mean, I think it's a hard thing for people to, it's a hard pill for people to swallow. But you know what? Your kids are having sex. That's a fact. But yeah, we'll be back after this song break. Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Clipcentral.com. Did you say? I know I saw you singing, but my ears won't stop ringing long enough to hear those sweet words. What did you say? End of the day. have to hear those sweet words spoken like a melody all your love is a lost love rising up through the afternoon till it could fit Glad to see you again. 
long enough to hear those swaying words and your simple melody. I just have to hear those swaying words spoken like a melody. I just wanna hear those sweet words. Kanye, that song was just for you. Thank you. My day's made. Oh, that's great. Isako, <laughs> your mom, you were telling us. <laughs> I was saying while we were having a condom discussion, I was laughing to myself because my mother is the most conservative person I've ever met. She never talks about sex. She never talks about boys. She just doesn't go there, especially with her children. And the other day she asked me, she said, you know, I'm asking you as a medical doctor. I saw the other day that there's a flavored condom. Why Isako <laughs> would a condom need to be flavored? And it was just her and I in the car. I was driving. I said, mom. Are you blind? She's like, no, I mean, you know, something that's flavored is something that's going to go into your mouth. I don't understand why a condom would need to have a flavor. Maybe you can answer as a doctor. I said, mom, knowing your personality and mine, the answer to that question is going to, it's not going to go down well. So Google it. Oh, me. So she just told her mama, people do this in bed. No, about 20 minutes later, I mustered the courage to tell her and she just went, okay. That and was that is the end of the story. That's shameful, Mama. This national is on a blowjob base and so on and so on. And yeah, so, so something else that I saw last week, um, 60% of sex workers in South Africa are HIV infected. Yes. Tell us about that report. You know, what's worrying was following that report, they also said that the majority of their clients refuse to use condoms. Which is quite scary because their clients are ordinary people. They're bankers, they're doctors, they're teachers, you know. So if, they're sleeping with sex workers without protection, and the majority of them can't negotiate it. I mean, if the sex was transactional, your ability to negotiate a condom goes down. So if we've got sex workers who are saying positive 60%, and we've got their clients who are refusing to use condoms, I mean, that's quite scary, I think. Yeah, that is scary. I mean, I, and, I mean I'm happy that you mentioned transactional sex and the fact that it's difficult to negotiate within that. And it, it comes back to the whole discussion I always have with people around um, older sugar daddies, mm. you know, young girls having relationships with older men. The issue, it's not that these young girls are sleeping with old, older men. The issue is around the negotiation of safe sex. So if you're in a transactional relationship of whatever sort, there's a master and there's a slave. Exactly. And I think the word transaction, people assume it's money only. It's not only but money. But transaction, the, the transactional relationship could be for other means. It could be for school fees. It could be money for doing her hair. It could be money for her nails. It could be groceries for the household. So the minute a relationship is transactional, the one who's receiving, at the end of the receiving end of the relationship, you can't negotiate. So young girls with these relationships of men who are 40, 30, Definitely, their risk of HIV is four times higher, and this was shown with the HSC, HSRC report, because their ability to negotiate condom use is definitely reduced. Yeah. Um, so if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Cindy Siwa-Fansel. You can catch me on Twitter at DocCindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I. And I'm in studio with Kanye and Lesejo, who work with HIV. And we're discussing everything HIV, and I mean, we're having a really great discussion. And the next thing I'm going to bring up is something really controversial, especially, I think, in the black community, because we haven't really worked our head around it. But I want to speak about men who have sex with men. And, you know, we have the Health for Men program that's in Johannesburg. And just tell us a bit about that. Tell us, you know, what is MSM? Why is it important? And why are they a um, a vulnerable group that we have to focus on? Okay. Um, I'm very glad we brought this up because it's so much more prevalent than what we think. And as you're saying, in the African community, it's something that we don't talk about. So MSM, as you said, stands for men who have sex with men. MSM does not mean gay. It does not mean homosexual only. Homosexuals are a part of the MSM group. Any man... And don't repeat it. Just please, don't repeat it because I really want people to hear this very clearly. Okay. So MSM is a man who has sex with men. It is not only a homosexual man. It is not what some people like to say, gay. Or bisexual, it includes the entire community. They could be homosexual, they could be heterosexual. There are many men who have sex with men who regard themselves as homo, as heterosexual men. Exactly. Many of them have wives and families at home. Many of their wives know that they have sex with men. So it's not a secret underworld as many people think. Mm. It could also be transgender gentlemen. It could, the whole LGBTI community has men who have sex with men. Mm. So why we need to focus on them, we call them key populations. And they're populations that are particularly vulnerable to HIV transmission. 
and acquisition. And the reason is because a lot of times it's anal sex. As you know, there are many different types of sex. But um, the, the most prevalent kind is anal sex. And because the anus is different to the vagina, the transmission of, of, of HIV is much easier through anal sex because of the anatomical structure of the anus. Yeah. So and the walls of the rectum are very um, fragile thin, yes. and they're very thin. And there's a lot of blood vessels in that area. So it is much easier to acquire HIV through or anal sex. HIV through anal sex. Yes. And another thing that I think we should bring up, Cindy, is oral sex. Because many people still are not aware that you can transmit HIV or other STIs through oral sex. Mm. So I think that while we're talking about this, we should bring that up. Yeah. And I mean, I think, yeah, so, and yeah, to, and to clarify that is that obviously it's, it's STIs more than HIV, mm-hmm. but with HIV, I mean, you, you'd have to have sores in your mouth and, you know, open wounds and so yes. on. And I always say, I would not give anyone a blowjob if they had sores in their yeah. mouth, mm-hmm. you know, so that brings us to the whole issue of look, you have to look. If you're going to give someone a blowjob, please look, look. and see what's happening. And you know. use a condom. Yeah. Yes. You can flavored condoms. There we there go. There we go, mom. <laughs> there we go. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> but another thing that we need to, we need to bring up with, with MSM is not just the, the transmission of HIV and anatomical physiology. I think there's a lot of social problems around that, that, that whole group of men. I think that we don't make our services accessible to them mm. because you need to be able to take a proper history from them. You need to approach them in a certain way. You need to be open-minded. You need to be able to ask them about oral sex and you need to know what their needs are because they have very specific needs that many other groups of patients don't have. And you need to be trained and equipped and able to take a history, to do a full examination and to provide them the services that they need. So many times the problem is that they don't come to clinics. They don't present for healthcare and it's mostly because of the attitude of health workers and because they feel that they can't be helped. So that's where we as healthcare workers need to do a lot of work for our And patients. you guys do training around that, I know. Yes, yes, we do. MSA. The the part of the organization that works with that group is called Health for Men. So they are focused on the sexual needs of men, whether it be physical, social, financial, emotional, all the sexual needs of MSM males. Mm, and then women who have sex with women, WSW, what's happening around there? Because, you know, yes, the HIV transmission is possible between women who are having sex with women. Yes. Um, that That is a program that was recently launched by the organization, which is Health for Women Who Love Women. Yeah. And I th- that one is more around the, the social aspects of the sexual needs, how to approach the patients. Because they are also a key population as we discussed earlier on. So there's a lot of training going on on how to manage and how to approach and how to deal with the patient who is a woman who loves having sex with other women. Yeah. And, um, adolescence. I think the important thing about adolescence, just like we've been talking about key populations, men who have sex with men, the problem is how do they access healthcare? Traditionally, we know that when a young girl goes to a clinic or to a doctor, the first thing the healthcare worker does is behave like a parent instead of behaving like a healthcare worker. So you find a lot of adolescents who are afraid to go forth and say, I've got an STI or I want to test for HIV because automatically the healthcare worker might react like a parent and shout and judge and all of that. So I think the key thing that we have to do now if we really want to make an impact and to reach them is to make sure that we make our services accessible. We make sure we can talk to them in a language they understand, reach them where they are. Where are adolescents? They're on Twitter. They're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're on social media. So how are we talking to them? If we're waiting for them to come to the clinics, it's too late. You know, So we have to refine our messaging. We have to refine our services and tailor them to them if we really want to reach them and make an impact. And I think one thing that people do overlook is the fact that you know, we introduced treatment into our program in 2001. The PMTCT program started in 2001. In 2004, we had the formal treatment program start. A lot of kids were born HIV infected mm-hmm. and they have survived and those kids are now going into the teenagers. Exactly. And if if you don't speak to your kids about sex, they're going to come across, you know, exactly. these youngsters, they're going to embark on relationships and it's important for your kids to know what to ask. You know, I, I want people to say, I am HIV positive. Can we have a relationship? Informed consent. Mm-hmm. Put it on the table and I will know what I'm dealing with. But to, to have non-disclosure, 
is a problem. You know? So exactly how do we right. work around yeah. that? The stigma, first of all, yeah. and then non and then non disclosure. Can you what are you, what, what are you say? What are, what are you seeing in the clinics, and what are your thoughts around this? I think the hardest thing when seeing adolescents who are HIV positive is seeing a young teenage child who has not been told of their status. And what people forget, especially healthcare workers and parents, is that these kids are not stupid. They're growing up. They come into the consulting room. They see the posters that are written HIV. They see the drug charts. They see everything, yet nobody's talking to them about their status. So can you imagine what they must be going through? They're guessing. They're reading. They have questions and they can't ask because nobody's come forth and said this is the problem. So I think the important thing with children is to start disclosure very early. And what's the right age for disclosure? The thing is with disclosure, it's not something you do once off. You Mm -hmm. can't come to a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old today and say you're Mm -hmm. HIV positive. It's a process over the years. So from when they're a young child, you start by saying you have a germ in your body, a germ in your body that needs treatment. If you don't take the treatment, the germ makes you sick. As they get older, you qualify that statement a little bit more until you can say you have HIV. And I think that process is different for every child, depending on their maturity, their intellect, and their understanding. But to say nothing is criminal. And disclosure at creches, like if your child's in creche, do you think it's important to, um, you know, to disclose to the to the teachers? At creche? Look, that's very touchy, and I think it's also very tricky. I think the important thing for creches and schools is for them to know and treat every child like they might be HIV positive, know how to manage an accident, how to deal with blood, teach everybody about their health, about medication, so that you don't want a child victimized at the end of the day at school, um, and their treatment most of the time should be taken at home. So that's something, not something they have to do during school hours. But definitely every educator, every teacher, every child in the class should be taught how to manage blood and not be afraid of this one particular child. So everybody should have a good attitude towards health, towards bodily fluid, and how to deal with it. And stigma in the workplace, Lucia, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, before I talk about that, can I just add another dimension to that conversation of disclosing to children? I think we haven't addressed the parents in the disclosure discussion. Um, a lot of times it's very difficult for a parent to disclose to the child because their feelings of guilt, they're worried about how the child will react A lot of moms feel that it's their fault that the child is HIV positive. So it's difficult for her to tell this to the child. So I think in our approach, we need to include the parents in that. Many parents come to us to ask for our assistance. Can you please tell my child in my presence that I'm HIV positive? Because she simply cannot do it. So I think that we also need to equip ourselves and we need to expect that. And we need to also be ready to assist a parent to disclose to the child because that's important. And in the workplace? That's a very important point. Thank you for raising that. And HIV and stigma in the workplace, sick nerds, employers wanting to know what's wrong with someone, why they're always at the clinic. I mean, I used to come across that a lot when I worked in the clinics. Yes, it still happens a lot. And um, I heard you say on YouTube the other day that the stigma actually hasn't gone anywhere Mm. in that we fooled ourselves into thinking there's no more stigma. We've come a long way. I won't deny that, but we still have a long way to go in terms of stigma, in terms of your colleagues. And just to remind people that they are not obligated to disclose their status to anybody because we have a lot of patients coming to us saying, my employer demands to know what's wrong with me. And we have to remind them that your employer has no right to know what is wrong with you because you also get a lot of people who get fired because of it or who are now treated differently. They're not promoted. They are shunned in the workplace, and it can be very subtle. So just to remind people that your employer has no right to demand what's wrong with you. And it is difficult, but from our side as healthcare workers, we can also try to manage our patients such that we don't have too many clinic visits for people. And, for example, something that we're working on at the moment is the chronic clubs that can happen very early in the morning so that patients don't have to miss an entire day of work. So there's a lot of restructuring and re-engineering of the primary healthcare system to decrease clinic visits because we must remember that many of our patients are employed, many of our patients have children. They can't come to the clinic three times per week. And the clubs are working. I mean, I know that there's been great success. For example, Ezola, the Zola, the Zola club system. So just talk us through a, a club and how it would work. What if patients are, st- you know, at, this, is, this is expanding across the country, the club system. What, what can be expected? I'm very excited to talk about clubs. <laughs> well, I'm glad because it's something that's going to happen throughout the country eventually. Yes, yes. And, and that is our goal to ha- have it happening throughout the country. So basically what a club is, is a group of patients who have a chronic disorder. 
It does not have to be HIV. It can be any chronic disorder, whether it be hypertension, diabetes, asthma, HIV, because now HIV is considered a chronic disease, but it's for those patients who are stable. And we have certain eligibility criteria that apply to all the chronic diseases. That patient does not need to be seen on a regular basis because they're stable and they're controlled in their treatment. So what happens with those patients is that they're formed into a club, a group of 20 to 30 patients that meet at a given time. And ideally, when the club is running smoothly, it takes maximum one hour. And the good thing is that it's also sort of a support group because while the patients are waiting to receive their medication, they get a health talk. Patients talk to each other, become friends with one another, and you, you share something in common with the people that you're in a club with. And it motivates patients to stay compliant because it's so much more convenient to be in a club than to queue at the clinic. The purpose of the clubs is to decongest the primary health care system. And also to remove the stigma and around, remove, around HIV. Yes, exactly, because now they're with all the other patients, and it's just patients who have chronic diseases. It's not HIV patients. It's not diabetic patients It's simply people who have a chronic disease And who are stable and well controlled And it will also help from a healthcare worker side That the clinics will be decongested And they won't be the queuing for hours and hours and hours mm. Can you, when I started working with HIV in 2008, 2009 actually There was this whole list of things that people can't eat If you're HIV positive, you couldn't drink Coke You couldn't drink this You had to drink 100% juice and so <laughs> on And it took a while to actually get people to understand that you just you you eat what you normally do, but everything in moderation, and obviously you're trying to f- to, to to focus on the healthier food. So, yeah, give us a bit of of, of info around the nutrition with for an HIV infected person. Look, I think it must have started with good intention. People wanted to advise people how to be healthy, but it ended up being this is the way HIV positive people should eat. You know, but I think the idea was generally people should eat well. You know, don't eat too much sugar, don't eat too much carbohydrates. You know, if you need vitamins, take them. Just healthy eating in general. Don't abuse alcohol, the rest of it. But there isn't a specific diet that should be specifically prescribed because one is HIV positive. Remember, it's a chronic illness, like Lisa said, and in general, people should be taking care of their health in totality. The important thing with HIV, above nutrition, above anything else, is to take the ARVs to make sure that that virus is suppressed and is not replicating and therefore not causing further damage to the immune system and to the rest of the body in general. And why should ARVs be taken at the same time every day? Look, the idea around that, one, it's routine. Once you do something the same time every day, you will remember it. It becomes a part of your daily life. And second, you have to maintain a certain amount of drug level in the body all the time so that it's consistently active and the, and the virus can remain suppressed all the time. So taking it at a certain time all the time ensures that the level of the drug is consistent in the body throughout the day, throughout the night, and so on and so on. That's very important. Mm-hmm. And some of the conspiracy theories around HIV, I mean, I've heard it all. I think the, the best one, the, the one that still prevails, you know, still get asked this at dinner parties and at parties in general, is that the virus was made in a laboratory in America by some white person who's trying to get rid of Africa, like trying to decimate, you know, Africa. Mm-hmm. What do you answer when people say that? I mean, I've got my answer. I just give the science. What do you, what do you say? What do you say, Kenny, when someone says that to you? Look, that's something that I try not to entertain at all because I think for me, my experience of HIV has been very personal. If you've trained in the time of HIV and you've seen the devastation and the horror and the death and you've had to certify 10 patients a night at a hospital dead because of HIV, you really can't afford to be stuck on conspiracy theories when you know this treatment. If you've worked at clinics and you've started patients on treatment from when they have a CD4 count of, say, 30, you see that six months later they're working, they're able to have families, they're contributing to society. That's where we should be concentrating. I really, really, really don't like to be stuck on those conspiracy theories because I know the devastation that it has caused and I know the power that treatment has. Okay, and mm. a few weeks ago I gave a talk at um, a traditional healer's um, association forum, which is really great because, um, you know, we can't run away from the fact that for most people in this country, their first port of call when they're not feeling well is a traditional healer. So I've just gotten a message from Unkosi. Unkosi says he's HIV positive, he's very traditional and cultural, and the thought of using Western medicine scares him. So can he trust his traditional healer to make him feel better? You know, so... You know, I have I have my view. I'm just interested to know. Let's see. I'll start with you, then we'll, we'll move over to Kenya because we need to remember this: that in our setting, in the African setting, the traditional healer is usually the first port of call before they come to us. So, what do you have to say? Well, yes, that's true, and um, I think that we have to be very careful 
as healthcare workers because we sometimes come at people of at a point of telling them what to believe. And lots of people do believe in traditional healers and many people believe in Western medicine. So just be, what we've trained in doesn't necessarily make us the experts and correct and we can say to another person don't. But what we can do is explain the science to the patient as you have said and as Kanye has said, not, 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 um, approach the patient in a punitive way in that you're going to die and scare the patient, but try to get the patient on your side. I find that many times when you explain things to your patient and they understand what it is that you are giving them and they understand the purpose and they understand that you're not taking them away from their traditional healer, but just explain that some of the, some of the treatment that we give and what is given by traditional healers may not work well together. And another thing that I think while we're on the point is that we need to work together with traditional healers because as much as we are healthcare workers, they are healthcare workers too. And we're taking care of the same people, but just in different ways. So whether we like it or we don't, they are there, we are here, and we need to work together with them because they are healers too. I absolutely agree with that. And I think the first port of call, especially with government, is to work closely with the, ed- with the traditional healers and educating them when they need to send the pl- clients to the clinics or to the doctor, whomever they need to see. Make sure that they know what is their role in the program. I think the minute you make them feel part of the program, you make them feel important as well and they have a voice and there's things that they perhaps can take care of whether it's spiritual health or whatever it may be, and let us take care of the medical aspect of things, then we can begin to work together. But I think when people aren't upfront about what they're taking, and they're also taking medications such as ARVs, it can be very dangerous because these medications work simultaneously. They can affect the liver. They can affect the kidneys. So it's very important for people to know what they're taking. The important thing about ARVs is they've been studied. We know how they work. We know their side effects. We know the contraindications. It's difficult to say the same about traditional medicines, which is why we tend to advise patients not to take them because we don't know. So it's safer to take something that we've studied, we understand well, we've seen results with it, and anything else maybe that they need spiritually, perhaps the traditional healer could take care of that. And that's true. I mm-hmm. think that's, and that's a point that I brought up. And I said, so when I gave that talk, I said to the traditional healers that were there that what we want is a te- we want teamwork. Mm-hmm. Cause I want a patient to have the, to have the courage to disclose that they're on traditional medicine and they should be able to do the same thing when they go to the traditional healer for the sake of the patient. Mm-hmm. So we can't stop people from taking traditional medicines or Western medicines, but we want to know so that we can see how we work it. Exactly. You, know, you can't take the things together. You can maybe take the one thing 12 hours before the other just for the sake of your body. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's really the point of, of the collaboration between traditional healers and, 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 tra- and, and Western medicine because the spiritual components, there's no doctor that, that can say that they can cater to a patient's every need. Mm-hmm. We, we, don't, we don't cater right. to yeah. the spiritual because I think we're very clinical, we're very, um, you know, scientific, you know, everything's science. So we don't have the time to be like, oh, so how are you feeling inside? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a and things like that. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I wish we did because I think it would make us better healers, but we don't cater for that. And that is really, what church healers and traditional healers cater to. They, mm. they, they take care of the psychological aspect of a patient. And I, and I mean, medicine, like just training, where did you train, Kenny? I trained at UCT. And Lesejo? Tux. Oh, of course, you're tucky <laughs> like me. When you say that, I'm actually thinking about what we used to say a lot at Tux, which mm. is the holistic approach to the patient, where in terms of Western medicine, we see the patient as a textbook. Mm. For this thing, I must write this. And the patient is not that. The patient is a person. And like what you're saying now, that many times we cannot address the spiritual problems. We cannot address the emotional and mental problems. So the collaboration is important. And during your training, I mean, do you guys ever go through the phase of, oh, bed 30? You know, they always say this, bed 30 is, you know, a mm. sex me, bed yes. 30. And mm-hmm. how did you guys respond to that? Because I was one of those. And I was like, no. Yeah. That's a person, you know, I'd always call patients by their names. Yes. And I was, I remember Barra, I was, I was considered to be really emotional during ward rounds because I couldn't, I couldn't handle people just, we get to a bed, there's no height to the patient, there's nothing. You just get to a bed and you start talking. Yeah. Instead of introducing yourselves and so on. Mm. How did you respond to stuff like that? Because there's still some professors and there's still some registrars that act like that. I think that's probably why I was drawn to the HIV world because this is probably the one side of medicine where you get to know your patients by name. You get to see their progress from day one to six months on treatment to, f- to three years on treatment and how they're doing and follow them. You get to know who their kids are. You know, it's a relationship. Whereas when you work in a big hospital, the Khrutiskis, the, you know, the Eustas, the Barras, 
You're right, it's numbers. You have 45 patients every day, you're discharging, you're taking in more, discharging, taking in more. So you don't get to invest in people individually. You don't get to know who they are, you don't get to remember their names. It's too many people. But when you work in the HIV world, it's a long-term relationship. And that's where it tends to draw passionate people who care about people individually. Who, you know, I'm not saying doctors don't care in general, but I'm just saying that the nature of the work and the relationship that you develop with the patients is so much more. And how do you not take the stuff home? How do you, I take stuff home. I used to take stuff home. I'd cry. I'm, I'm on everyone knows. I was always mm. crying. Okay. How do you not take stuff home? Look, I think when I first started, I couldn't be alone at night. I, I, I always wanted people around. I couldn't sleep. I used to think of every patient that died, how they died, what did I do, what didn't I do, mm. what did they need, what happened, what could have been, you know, everything goes through your mind and I couldn't go to bed, I couldn't sleep. But I think it takes time and it takes having a circle of friends and family who understand and we're able to talk about it because you forget that as healthcare workers we're people too and we have feelings too and we have emotions and and we get scared and, you know, the the whole spectrum, we go through it too. So I think it took a long time for me to sort of get used to having a work life and a personal life and being able to close it off. And I do cry for my patients, but I do know that when it's time to go home, it's time to go home. And Lesejo, how do you cope? I talk. Mm. That's how I cope. <laughs> but I'm going to try and answer both of your questions at once. I mean, in terms of training, these are not your friends And I'd say no they're not my friends but they're people And the day came for me When I became a patient And I remember being so scared Being, I found suddenly this doctor Looked very scary to me Where We were in her consultation We were talking everything was fine The minute I had to lay on a bed and let her do something to me I was terrified and that was when I was still training. And I never forget that experience of how scary you are to a patient and how intimidating it is. We forget that people are vulnerable in that position. Many of our patients socioeconomically are very poor. They're not educated most of the time. Our patients are sick. And they don't understand what's happening to them. And you are now the person that holds all the information. And you are the one who's doing things to them and prescribing things for them. And you're not even talking to the person. And like we said earlier on, if you just talk to your patient, it's so powerful to just talk to them. Just tell them what's happening. Tell them what medication you're giving them. I found a lot of healing in that for me. Just like you said, calling the patient by their name. But a lot of healing for me came in speaking to the person, telling them what's going on, telling them what's happening to their body. But how I heal and how I deal with it is I go home. Home is a very safe place for me. So I talk. I talk my husband's head off. <laughs> and I try oh, so your husband's not the only one. They must start a support group because my poor husband as well. <laughs> no, they needed husbands of doctors. I've got a name for them and everything. They, but I found it very, very healing. Like what Kanye was saying, I speak to my family a lot. I, I just offload at home. But I do take my work home with me. And I, I, and when you're as passionate as we are, I don't think you can ever not take your home, your work home. You sit and think, did I do the right thing? Did I try my best? And for me, that helps me to do my best for each patient. Because you sit at home and say, okay, I want to be able at the end of everything to say, I did my best for this person. And pediatrics, how do you guys work with kids? Because I know that peds used to make me cry. Uh, I, you know, I was always going to be a pediatrician and then I got to Barra and I worked there in 2006 and that was at the height of the HIV deaths and I saw all these babies dying mm. and something broke inside me. I'll always come back to Barra as the one biggest change in my life. You know, apart from my mom's death, just working at Barra broke me and I quit. I, I was not even going to start to do peds after seeing babies mm. dying. How do you guys cope with, with HIV pediatrics? That's one you can't get away from. That's one where you'll remember them by name. You'll know their faces. It's just, especially I'm a mother now. Once I had my own child, it becomes a different experience totally because you see your own child in their face. And you just, I think the good thing about it is that you want to do everything you can for them. Mm. But it is emotional and it's wrecking. And we forget about that as healthcare workers and we don't talk enough. I know we say we all talk to our husbands and our family, but we certainly don't talk enough. It's a lot to carry. But, you know, you see the work that you're doing. And when you do see kids growing up, going to school and doing well, you know, what more can you ask for? And is your pediatrics? What I always say about pediatrics is, in I I am not a pediatrics person. <laughs> Very similarly to you, when I was in high school, I was going to be a pediatrician. I had made up my mind. Until I went to university and I did pediatrics, I was devastated for four months. 
It was horrible. I, I still don't know how to get used to it, so I don't really have an answer for you mm-hmm. because I can't deal with it. It's too much for me. It's too much for me to see a sick child. It's too much for me to see a child who is sick because of the irresponsibility of the adults around that child. It's too much for me to not be able to get through to those adults sometimes. But like Kanye said, the good is good and the bad is awful with pediatrics. So I can't handle that up and down, so I just try to stay away from it, from it, from it as much as I can. But it motivates you that when you do see a child, you are going to give that child a thousand percent. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And just, you know, just in closing, I mean, I've really loved chatting to you guys. I could spend the rest of the afternoon chatting to you. Mm-hmm. Um, just a few nuggets to share with, with the listeners. Can you? And then Lisekho and then we'll close off. Look, I think my thing that I always say is that people need to be proactive about their health. I can't say that enough. People generally wait until they're ill to seek health care or to know what their health status is like. And I think that's one mistake that we make. People need to know what's your HIV status. Have you had a pap smear if you're female? Are you circumcised if you're male? Do you have an STI? Have you been had any screening? So I think the important thing is to be proactive. Know what your baseline is and then you take it from there. Um, mine is actually quite similar to what Kanye said. I mean, it's going to sound very cliche, but I think sometimes cliches are cliches because they're true. Um, we, we've been hearing a lot in politics about active citizenship, and I like to call it active patientship. Be an, be an active participant in your own healthcare. It's not, engage your doctors, ask them questions. I always encourage patients to ask me questions because they need to know what's going on with their body. Know your status. Having the knowledge is having the power. When you know better, you can do better. There's nothing to be afraid of because there's so much help out there. If only you will go and access it. So you must know your status and you must become an active participant in your own body, your own health care. Well, thank you so much, ladies. I think if you want to catch Dr. Kanye, see the, um, Chabalala on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Dr. Kanye, D-R-K-H-A-N-Y-I. You can catch Lesejo as well. She's Lesejo Twala, at Lesejo Twala, L-E-S-E-G-O-T-W-A-L-A. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting to you too. And, um, I'll see you guys next week. I'll be chatting to Professor Tim Noakes next week. We'll be chatting about banting. So yeah, do tune in. Cliffcentral.com. 